AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for February 2nd, 2016. Uh, this program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Uh, today, we're joined online by Jim Clausing. Hi, Jim. How are you doing? Good. Yeah, enjoying the warm weather here for a change for a day or two. Yeah, it's warmer here, too, as well. So uh, we're supposed to be, I think, 50 tomorrow or something it's going to get up to. So that's kind of surprising for February. Um, also, uh, on the couch, we have Matt Kaiser. Hey, Matt. How are you doing? Pretty good. Good to have you back. And we have uh, Manny Ortiz as well, uh, one of our other frequent contributors to the program. Good to have you back as well. Happy to hear me here. All right, thanks, Manny. So let's jump into the first story. Um, and I think you were looking at this one, uh, Jim. Oracle released a record set of patches uh, just recently. Oracle's been on their uh, schedule of doing quarterly patching for all of their products uh, for a number of years now. Uh, so just last week was their uh, January set of patches, and this time it was huge. They released 248 patches covering all of their products, which granted is a large number of products. The big ones that, that caught my attention, there were seven CVEs for the Oracle database products, and the highest CVSS rating for any of those was a 9.0, mm. um, but fortunately none of them were exploitable remotely without authentication. So if you're running your Oracle database, patching those is a real pain in the butt anyway, but uh, they've got a, a couple of really significant patches here. There were uh, 23 CVEs for Solaris covered the highest CVSS score among those was 7.8. There were nine for VirtualBox with a high score of 7.5. There were 22 for MySQL with a high score of 7.2. And the biggie, of course, was Java. There were only eight CVEs, but three of them rated a 10.0 CVSS score. As usual, if you are running Java, it is very important that you stay on top of the quarterly patches and get those applied because, as I said, the three of the eight CVEs for Java were 10.0 on the CVSS scale. So, so yeah, a whole bunch of patches covering a whole bunch of products. Oracle's got their little matrix on the on their web page where they uh, announce the the patches, so you can see you know, what vulnerabilities were were covered and how critical the the ratings of those were so if you if you run oracle products you know you probably are already on top of these but uh, the patches need to be applied all right so yeah i guess um frequently although i don't know if in this case it applies as much but frequently we see a lot of scanning activity on oracle ports that might address some of these vulnerabilities after these patch cycles get released, because people start looking at what the patches were, and they're going to try to see if they can find any vulnerable machines for that uh, type of uh, exploit. So that's something we'll have to keep an eye out for, I guess. 
Um, it sounded like there weren't too many remotely exploitable ones, though, from what you saw. Not against the Oracle database. You had to be authenticated before you could exploit them. Okay. But I, I still expect to see an increase in scanning on port 1521. Just it, it happens every quarter. Folks looking for it, thinking they may have a way in, they can exploit it. I also expect to see a little more scanning for MySQL on port 3306 just because there were a bunch of patches for that for that as well. And some of those, um, at least one of those was remotely exploitable, but that one was way down on the list. That only had a CVSS score in the range of 2 or maybe even 1.7 or something like that. So I, I expect to see some scanning for for a number of these. And, you know, all of their middleware products were patched in this bunch as well. Like I said, this 248 is is a huge number of vulnerabilities to be addressed, in, but it's over a, a whole slew of products. So It's also over an entire quarter, whereas a lot of other you know vendors try to do a monthly patch cycle. So you're looking at whatever three months here, which it might have been whatever, 80 in each month. Although still 80 in a month is a lot. 80 is, but, still, uh, is still a lot, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, interesting. And I guess we should probably keep an eye out for any kind of brute force password guessing, too, because, you know, I would see that, you know, even though you might need to be authenticated for Oracle, it's not going to preclude people from trying to do some real simple, you know, SA, SA password type guessing attacks against Oracle as well. So looking for the database administrator accounts with with default passwords right. or easy passwords. Absolutely. Right, we, right. we do see some of that going on. I was just going to say, I wonder what the uh, what was the uh, record before this 248? It's a good question. I don't know. Do you know, Jim? Was there? I I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, I, it was under 200, I think. Okay. But I don't remember off the top of my head. Well, I've got a real easy segue for you because we're going to go to the next story that you were also looking at, which is also about another Oracle product, uh, but a little bit more focused on the Java plugin. And I guess there's some uh, life cycle changes going on there. Yeah, at the same time that they did their quarterly uh, patch update, they also announced that they will be phasing out the Java plugin in web browsers. Right. They will officially deprecate it in uh, the Java development kit JDK 9, which is in beta now and is scheduled for release in uh, September, in the third quarter of 2016. There are some stories out there saying, yay, it's finally time they do this. And actually, uh, Brian Krebs did a story on that just today as well. But in some sense, their, their hand is also being forced on this. A number of the browsers have started either indicating they're going to or actually started taking the steps to eliminate some of the, the plugins that they support, the third-party plugins that they support. Uh, Flash plugin has right. been disabled in a number of browsers. The browser manufacturers had already said in the not-too-distant future, we're going to not support the Java plugin anyway. So Oracle, seeing the writing on the wall, um, has said they're going to 
they're going to deprecate it. That doesn't mean it'll be completely eliminated in you know in third quarter. It will still be there. There it'll just be not enabled by default. A little harder to to turn on. It will eventually go away completely. But basically, what Oracle is pushing for is use of their Java Web Start technology instead to replace the plugin, which is just it, it's a slightly different technology that still allows Java applications to be downloaded and run separately, but it's not run within the context of the browser anymore. Um, and it takes some human interaction to force all of that. But I, I still think it's a, it's a good move. I look forward to the Java plugin being gone because so many of the of the exploit kits mm -hmm. that was the right there at the top of their list of things they were looking for, you know, angler, black hole, nuclear rig. They all were looking for flash and Java, you know, as the vast majority of the uh, vulnerabilities that they were looking for. So I, I won't be sorry to see it go and it won't, it'll take a long time to completely die out. There are going to be, you know, a lot of legacy applications tucked away in some corner that you know people will keep an old version of the browser with the, the java plugin installed in it just because that application nobody remembers who coded it or how to fix it but it still works so uh, it, it's not going away completely but I, it's a step in the right direction right yeah i agree and being you know in my previous life i was a java developer for probably 15 years or something i'm a big fan of java server side i think it's a great language but in the whole plugin context i've always been kind of it just introduces too many security vulnerabilities to allow somebody else to run code inside your browser and um, not that there are other, aren't other technologies that allow you to do that, like JavaScript and other things, although there's a little bit, I don't know that we've seen real big JavaScript exploits, but um, uh, like you said, Flash is another one. And I think I even heard that Adobe might be abandoning their Flash uh, platform and moving towards an HTML5 type of yep. you know, technology uh, yep. for yep. their Flash type of uh, functionality that they currently provide. So. Right, right. For the for the animation kind of stuff, they're they're starting to push towards HTML5 rather than than Flash. Right. Uh, again, right. in part because the browser uh, manufacturers have said they don't want it anymore, too. Right, right. So we may be seeing this story pop up sometime really soon to talk about the Flash. Right. Death uh, of. The, the end death, of Flash? The end of mean? Flash, yeah. The death of Flash. End of Flash. Well, hopefully it's not the superhero Flash. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's a little... Right. Uh, that's maybe right. we're, we're going too esoteric uh, with the, <laughs> the whole uh, you know, Batman versus Superman with the Flash and Wonder Woman, which I am anticipating uh, a good movie there. Uh, anyway. A few of us are waiting for Deadpool. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So let's move on to the next story we have here. And I think you were looking at this one, Matt. Um, uh, Shodan, an interesting little uh, something Shodan was doing that people didn't quite know about, but yeah. someone figured it out. So this is this is pretty cool. But first, maybe explain what Shodan is. So Shodan, actually, we had John Matherly on the show oh, a couple true. weeks back. So okay. Shodan is a search engine for the internet. It's basically a search engine that scans the internet 
on all of the ports instead of just trying like a regular search engine on web ports. This goes and tries a large number, let's just say. It's not everything, but it's a large number of ports and then indexes the results and you can search for interesting stuff out there if you wanted to find devices, Internet of Things things. There was a recent article that got a lot of interest in Shodan because it was, you could find webcams and some of them are like baby monitor webcams. Right. But it's, it's, it's not targeted towards any particular technology. It scans and it shows you what it finds. Right, right. Uh, so recently it's been discovered that Shodan has been using an interesting technique to identify IPv6 addresses on right. the internet. Live so the IPv6 space mm -hmm. is really big. Huge. So in turn, like IPv4, you can scan it pretty quick, well, relatively quickly. Mm -hmm. But IPv6, you, I don't think you can really do it in short order, let's put it that well, way. Well, the address space is 128 bits. And, and some people believe, and I think this is sort of incorrect, that because it's so large, you have a certain amount of privacy just because of the nature of that. That right, it right. takes so long to scan the entire space that uh, no one's ever going to find my IP address. And there's also uh, some privacy extensions for it that are kind of cool where you can assign yourself several IG, um, IP addresses mm -hmm. and you know you can send from one or many of them and behave as separate identities Even and, and it'll all route back to you. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, so that's kind of cool. And that has some privacy, you know, benefits, I suppose. Right. But it turns out that some people who are using IPv6 connecting to the NTP pool project, NTP is the time syncing protocol, very popular on the internet, right. were finding out that they would sync to one of those pool servers and within a minute you would get back a scan from Shodan. They'd scan 100 ports on your machine. So it turns out the Shodan... By the IPv6 protocol. By the same address that you just connected right, to. Right. right. And it turns out that they had seeded some volunteer servers into that NTP pool project and were waiting for people from IPv6 addresses to start connecting. Sync, and then that triggered then them to do a scan. So it turns out that all you had to do was connect. It didn't have to be a valid NTP request. And it would say, oh, oh there's an IP address and it's live right now. Let me scan that and the results come back and they get added to Shodan. So this was discovered by a guy named Brad Hine, I hope I'm pronouncing the name correctly, on his blog. Interesting work in sort of finding the needles in the IPv6 haystack. Right. So I think this is going to be an interesting technique for the future because, like we said before, IPv6 is so huge, you don't want to have to scan the whole thing if you're doing these sorts of large-scale scanning projects. Now the other... Right. Scanning, scanning the entire IPv6 address space is not at this point practical I, the ipv4 address space can you know with zmap you can scan it in you know an hour or a couple hours on a single port at the same speed it would take millions of years to or or even more to scan all of the ipv6 address space so you know the sequential scanning hitting every single one is is not going to be practical in in the IPv6 space. So folks have been looking for other ways of doing it to to find the servers on there. And this apparently one of the ways that Shodan was was trying to do it was to you know piggyback on top of a a service that a lot of people need to use. Right. You know, you want to have correct time on your on your system, so they tried to piggyback on top of that. And if they can do it, you know, the bad guys might try to do it too. So. Absolutely. So I think that the key takeaways from this are, one, be aware that this may start happening in the future. This may be a technique that people will try to use to scan. You know, if you're using a service like this, it's kind of hard to say definitively that if I try, if I connect to this guy, they're going to eventually scan me. But something to be aware of and probably a, a pointer to possible other future abuse of, of protocols over IPv6. 
and um, don't rely on the, the fact that IPv6 is so huge to give you that sort of anonymity that you think you might be getting right. with it. Because if you, depending on who you visit, they might use that information to ping back a scan on you or whatnot. Now, from what I read, um, uh, the ncp.org project, whatever, I think it was them, um, Shodan, they removed those Shodan yep, servers. They've been they kind of said, hey, we don't really like this practice. <laughs> you know, it has a little um, conflict of interest, I guess. So they have been removed, but uh, that doesn't mean somebody else might not, you know, may try that similar tactic. And there might even be other services that you could try this kind of thing through. NTP is a good one because there's no kind of relay mechanism. Like, with, you know, I was thinking in my head, well, DNS might be one where you could get into a higher order DNS tier. And, but then you're just going to see more DNS servers because you'll have, you know, uh, mm -hmm. caching resolvers and stuff probably talking to you. So that's not really going to work. But um, interesting that they used NTP because that seems like a good one that everybody, almost everybody needs to use, mm -hmm. you know, in some respect and uh, would give you a good kind of sample set to work from for IPv6. You were going to say something? I was going to say, and it's probably more, it doesn't hurt that the pool allows people to join up, but I don't know if there's any sort of validation as to whether you're a regular behaving NTP server or not. But right. Well, there convert, probably will be now. Hopefully there will <laughs> right? be, yeah. Yeah. They hadn't thought of it, I bet, before this. Um, so, interesting. Uh, yeah, well, and one of the things, though, to to protect yourself as as a client is turning on some of the time-based temporary addressing features of IPv6. I mean, I, I run IPv6 on my systems at home, and, you know, each, each Ethernet interface has, like, five... Uh, or or ten IPv6 addresses assigned to it, and a number of them are time-based. They they the the middle pieces are generated randomly, and they you know uh, the the system assigns it to one of its interfaces and uses that for some period of time, and then changes it. You know servers, if you are going to want them. You know, to get traffic on IPv6, they're going to have static addresses. But the clients, if you're trying to be relatively anonymous, you know, you, you want to make sure you're turning on the time-based temporary addressing so that you're getting new addresses periodically. If you're trying to track malicious uh, clients in your enterprise, you're actually going to hope they're using static IPv6 or something that you're assigning them via DHCP v6 or something, but for your home users and, and folks trying to stay relatively anonymous on the internet, turn on the, the time-based addressing. Right, right. All right. You know, uh, just an interesting thing about that, I mean, would be, it would make an interesting at least discussion at some point, would be to talk about the the IPv6 and scanning. I mean, just like you guys were talking about before, like what does what does scanning look like once you move into a full IPv6 world? Because um, yeah. that changes things quite a bit. And right. Be interesting. I think you're going to need to use yeah. techniques like this. Yeah. Because we don't have uh, fast enough internet or uh, you know fast enough machines to scan <laughs> that type of space. Like right. Jim was saying, it would take probably years to try to do the entire IPv6 right. space or whatever. Yep. Um, I don't really know what it is, but it's not, you can't do it in hours like you can with IPv4, no. so. Certainly not. Um, anyway, 
interesting discussion, uh, interesting technique, uh, probably some food for thought about other avenues that people could do similar or other services that might be leveraged to do a similar type of tactic in the future. So good, good uh, food for thought. Um, so the uh, next story was one that you were looking at, Manny, and it had to do with an Apache config issue exposing a little bit more than people thought with Tor. Yeah, so I mean, so this is, technically this is actually not a new story. So mm -hmm. this, this story actually goes back, uh, back to at least somewhere towards the end of October of, uh, of 2012, at least that's as far back as I, you know, once I started researching on this. And there's some debate as to who initially brought it to light. Um, there's some things that say that HD Moore had something to do with it. There's a, there's a, um, a security a website security company called Securi um, that I found an entry back in Octo late October where they laid out this, uh, this potential, you know, it's not a vulnerability, it's just a misconfiguration. It's like an information leakage. Right. It's, it's really, a, yeah, it's an, an Apache misconfiguration. It's another one of those aspects where things are enabled by default and they shouldn't be, right? And you just have to be, if you're careful enough, you'll know to, to turn this stuff off. Um, so originally, when it was brought to light, it was just a generic problem. This is an Apache. Obviously, Apache is huge out there. They say that the Apache has like something like 40% uh, market share. Um, so Apache is, is out there in, in bulk. Um, so the, the problem is, is that you have this, uh, um, you have this uh, this module within Apache mm -hmm. uh, called mod uh, was it mod status? mod status mod status that is by default enabled, right? I believe it's it's a it's is it defaulted by enabled? Because hmm. I read that it was, and I wasn't actually sure that it was, and I hadn't gone to check myself. I'm not sure that it's. I think it may depend on other factors. I think okay. it might be like if you set up a certain copy of a LAMP stack, it's set this way, or if you choose a certain OS, it might be set up a different way. Okay. I'm not sure. All right. So, but regardless, it appears that um, there are a lot of Apache web servers out today who that have, that this, have, that that, that have this turned on. And so what does this actually do? So with this turned on, what it does is it actually, it's actually for administrative purposes. It's for an administrator to understand certain aspects of your server. Right, how fast like, is it performing? Right. How many clients are connected to me? Things right. like that, right? right? And things like HTTP requests that yeah. are being done, right. which is the problem in this, in, this, in this instance. So this is a problem for all, you know, for all Apache servers. The, the wrinkle here is that now it's been brought into the whole Tor network you know, you know, onion router, you know, being anonymous. Right, so I'm supposed to be on tour, I should be anonymous on who I am and what's going on on there, right? Exactly. Unless I forgot to disable this service on my machine. So that's then it. what happens, right? Yeah, and that's it. So if you forget to en enable it or disable this, you now have this page that is now accessible. So you can, anyone from the outside can hit it. And so now I can figure out from the status page what this server is actually serving up, potentially. And you'll get like real IP addresses, exactly. IPv4 IP addresses. Exactly. Lots of interesting, because I've seen these status pages on lots of other sites yeah. before. So, so if you've got hidden services, right? You've got hidden, hidden websites that you want hidden, that server, that status page, because it's doing the, it's, it's actually doing, it's, um, 
taking in the requests, right? So it's logging all the requests. You'll actually see that as part of the, the, the server status page. So it could be a server that has, um, that's serving up a, a regular, you know, .com website, but it, you can also see from that, that status page that it's also offering up Tor services. Yeah. Um, right. And so, like I said, that's, that, that's information that obviously you don't want out there because you, now you can figure out who's actually asking for those services. And, you know, there's some interesting things. We all know the kinds of things that are out there on the, on the Tor network, you know, stuff like, uh, you know, how to, how, to, how to hide a body. You know, that was one of the searches in the article. Exactly. Um, how to hide two bodies. Two bodies, exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> that's an interesting very specific twist on need. Because yeah. one is easy. When you got two, it gets harder. Right. Um, so anyway, so uh, you know, so obviously, it's it's. I'm not sure exactly why it's come to light now, like why it's been brought up again. Because it was a problem a couple years ago. It's just been sort of twisted now to say, well. Well, I think it's the combination, right? Before, when people were talking about it, they were talking about you know, these pages exist and I could go visit it. And sometimes the URLs is, I think that was the point of HD Moore's article is that the URLs that show on the status page can sometimes reveal lots of interesting information of who else is currently connected to the web server. And it might say like user ID equals whatever and password, you know, if it's right. a get page with like URL string. So sometimes they leak, uh, you know, either user parts, parts of user credentials or other things, or even just pages that you shouldn't know exist. Right. But now you do because you see a big long list of who's actually accessing the web server and what pages they're hitting. Yeah. Uh, now you've got this kind of combination of here's Tor, and you're supposed to be pretty well hidden on Tor. You know, one half doesn't know the other half of who's talking to who, but if you have this open, and a client comes and visits you, they can find out a lot of interesting information about that web server that you're trying to hide because you're on tour, but you're really exposing more than you intended. Well, I guess the, the message that I would take away from this is if you're going to run a tour hidden service, run one thing on that box. Don't try and run your, your car dealership or your, <laughs> right. your whatever at the same yeah. time because you'll run into these sorts of cases. Right. I think there was another issue where somebody else was there's certain things were accessible like on and off tour. Like there's always that sort of edge case where you're using it in one place and somewhere else. There was like an SSH key search that you, someone was setting up that you could search for the SSH host keys. And if it's the same SSH host key in tour as it is on some box elsewhere on the internet, you've just found out what box it is. Oh, interesting, yeah. interesting, yeah. That was that a while back. Huh, um, yeah, that is, I never thought about that. But yeah, interesting uh, concept. Um, one thing that I would, also mention is, because I've been doing some other research, but um, if you look at uh, Shodan, and because we've been using Shodan for some researchy type of things lately, uh, just even like visiting slash status on any kind of web server, it, you'd, that could be a study in of itself. Because I guarantee you, you're going to find a nice variety of pages that come back to you that give you various types of status <laughs> about that machine. I know JBoss is another one. So we talked about Apache just now uh, and their mod status. But JBoss comes with their own slash status, which is very similar to the Apache one, um, but slightly different, a little tailored for JBoss. Um, and then Tomcat has one as well. Tomcat, usually you have to log into it before you can see the status. but. Um, uh, there might be additional other ones as well out there that um, that you can you can just find by just poking a machine instead of hitting the root, hit slash status and see what it spits back. I got 
JSON messages, all kinds of things for various machines of different status pages. Uh, interesting what? Web scanning attempts. You ever see those? No, I, I know haven't. If you, there are some sites that will expose their web logs directly to the internet. Oh. And these are probably only running one site, but those are kind of cool sometimes because if I, if I see something in the logs for some other thing that I'm investigating, I, say, I have no idea what that is. Sometimes it'll come back and I'll find results on other websites and it turns out it's some scanner hitting all these other sites with the same URL pattern trying to find who knows what. Right, right, right. You figure it out at that point it's this one guy trying to find this one thing on the internet. Right. Interesting. Okay. Um, anyway, interesting yeah. story, um, something that people should be aware of. I would say extend this to, if you're going to host something on the internet, we talk about this quite a bit, make sure you understand all the services that are open and the ports. But even beyond that, you can have a certain port, especially with these like Java um, application container things like JBoss and Tomcat and or Cold Fusion. Sometimes you will get um, you know, your service that's running on it, but in an unintended way, you're also exposing the administrator or management panel, mm -hmm. and you didn't really mean to, but it was installed by default, and it's running on the same port, it's just under a different URL. But if people know, they can go find that. You know, they know that that's the typical URL to go administer cold fusion or whatever. They'll just go find the administrator panel, and then if you don't have a nice password on there, you haven't changed it yeah, to something other than the default, somebody could get in. So, um, and we talk about that all the time on the show, about Tomcat and scanning that goes on on that and people trying to brute force password guess their way in, especially nation state actors. Uh, we've seen quite a bit of activity there. Anyway, so, I digress. So, <laughs> the so the last thing, obviously, if, you've, if you find that you have this page exposed on your own server, the way to go about fixing this is to run the, run the command there. It's a, it's a sudo uh, ap2, which is for Apache 2.x, um, dis for disable, mod for module, and oh, then okay. the status the status for the, the actual module. It's called status. Okay. So that's, that's what will we'll actually disable that on your Apache server. Cool. All right, good. On some Linux distributions, on, right. uh, that, that doesn't work on all Linux distributions. If you're running, or or if you're running Apache on Windows or whatever, so you, you need to get, check how to ex turn it off for your particular setup, right. but yeah. right. or 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 lock it down so that only your administrators can get to it, which is the way it was really intended to be run. Uh, good story. Thanks for that. So the next one is also one that you're looking at and it kind of discusses cybercrime. And we talk about these cyber criminals out there and how they're making tons of money and driving around in fancy cars. <laughs> but that might not necessarily be the case, right? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, so you got to take this study with a grain of salt, right? Because, um, you know, it, 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 it did seem like a pretty um, extensive study. They, you know, they, they went and they, um, they surveyed, surveyed something like 10,000 hackers across uh, the United States, uh, UK, and Germany. They also, the, the report that that was actually produced um, for this particular piece about the, about, you know, how much cybercrime actually pays, um, they sampled um, more than like 300 respondents of this survey that they took. But unfortunately, there were some areas that we all know have a lot of this happening that weren't included as part of like the- Russia like Russia, like Brazil, like China, uh, weren't part of this. So, so you have to sort of take the numbers with a little bit of a grain of salt. So, but there were some interesting things that came out of, out, of the, out of the study. So it says 
that the average cybercriminal brings in about $30,000 a year, which is what they're saying about a quarter of the salary of a, a white hat, you know, so somebody right. who's in the, in the you know, security profession, you know, a legitimate security profession. So they're saying that's a, a quarter of the salary. So unfortunately, the, you know, the, the big piles of money that these, you know, that they're saying cyber criminals are, are getting usually is, is focused into the organized crime area. So mm -hmm. they're saying that organized crime makes up about 1% of of the total they're the guys who are making you know the swimming and the money and the you know and the fancy right, cars I was and say, driving. so the one percent of like organized crime they're accounting for a much larger percentage of the they're, they're, actual money or no they're making they're making more of the money so right. the, you know so that one percent makes the, that one percent is making a ton of money so they're the ones who are very organized they're the ones that are going after the bigger companies right they've got things that are much a, a lot more targets you know so they're you know they're, a lot more they're organized a lot more organized exactly. <laughs> so there's income inequality in the criminal world too huh I was going to say there's going to be a joke about organized crime and the one percent somewhere in there yeah, right? right. <laughs> yeah so and I walked right yeah, into so. it <laughs> exactly um, so I mean, so, you know, so they're saying, you know, obviously that, you know, that, you know, that the, your average, your average cyber criminal spends a lot of time trying to find targets and in the end ends up making less than somebody who's doing it legitimately. So, you know, and I'm sure there's a lot that we can probably discuss about, you know, how I'm sure there's some, there's some probably people and groups out there that are outside of the norm here. Right, that are probably making a lot more than thirty thousand dollars a year, but you know, I think you know they they did they did a survey and it you know did it across quite a few people. So it's interesting to see their numbers. Um, they the, there was a couple other interesting things that came out of the article um, or the the study. Um, they said that seventy five percent of hackers uh, surveyed say that they target weak, easy, or less costly targets, mm -hmm. um, which kind of makes sense, right? I mean, you know, that's, you know, it's going to be easy. Why not, right? Right, low-hanging um, fruit. Yeah. But the other interesting thing was that if a cyber criminal is looking at a target and, it, and they spend more than one week trying to find some sort of attack vector to get in, that they usually quit. Hmm. So after a week, they usually quit. Um, which was interesting. I'd never seen that type of, you know, timeline put put it, you know, put forth for how long do I actually spend before I say this is not going to be worth my time anymore. Um, and then, and then the other thing that they said was that it takes attackers 147 hours to plan an attack against a well-secured target, as opposed to spending a little less than half that time, 70 hours, for easier targets. Which you know again makes makes sense, but you know it's interesting that they were coming up with 147 hours. So you know so. See, I kind of think of two different uh, actor sets when we think about that. So you got this actor set who's actually working against maybe a target, trying to get into it. But when I think of cybercrime, a lot of the cybercrime is you know just malware that they'll deploy on victim machines. So. I don't know if that's accounted in here. How much time does it take me to build a piece of malware and then figure out I got to get a list of people to send it to? 
I got to figure out how I'm going to send it, you know, distribute my malware, get it on target machines, mm -hmm. and then start getting credentials back to me so that I can start stealing money from their bank accounts or whatever. There, there actually is a full, there's a full paper, a full report. The report is actually called Flipping the, uh, the Economics of Attacks. So there is actually a full report that this particular survey came out of. And I will say, I've seen other studies done by, I don't know how you say their name, the Ponemon Institute. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. Yeah, However, uh, I kind of am skeptical of the trustworthiness of their participants <laughs> in the study. Because just by the sheer nature, they're going to be inherently untrustworthy, most of these respondents. Probably worth uh, checking out there. I haven't read the reports. So it'd be they, interesting they, to read. The one thing that they did say in it, in it was that uh, a lot of the, you know, they call them a lot of the hackers that they surveyed were black hat that were converted to white hat. Interesting. Okay. Hmm. So that's probably, that would explain some of the sample set. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Interesting story. Uh, speaking of kind of the uh, mental, psychological aspects of how cyber criminals behave, I thought this was a really interesting story. I'm really excited, even though this has nothing to do with hardcore technical security. This is something we struggle with a lot, sure. and I found this to be a really interesting story. So it's one you were looking at, Matt, about yeah. us, uh, how to find good security investigators. Right, so this is a blog post by Chris Sanders, and uh, I didn't realize it until I'd read the article, but I've actually read his book, uh, Practical Packet Analysis, which is probably about as good a quick guide to Wireshark as you're ever going to get. So this guy knows his stuff. He starts off in this post talking about a metacognitive gap, which is uh, a longer way of saying we don't know what skills we need to look for in analysts. And he proposes, right. as a result of a, of a survey of about 12 analysts that he knows, that curiosity is one of the most important things you need to look for when you're looking for an analyst. And he goes into different reasons why that's important, different situations in which you might sort of tease out that this person is truly curious about this sort of thing. Things like dead-end scenarios, if they're investigating uh, a breach or any sort of incident, how many times do they come up and how quickly do they come up against an inability to proceed any further? Well, then they say, oh, I am done. That's the dead-end scenario. I can't go any further than this. Or do they try and find lateral thinking ways of saying, well, I know this, I know this. Maybe if I tried this crazy thing over here, I'll be able to at least try and proceed. Right. Uh, it's, it's being able to dig in and find alternate strategies to bypass those dead ends. Right, or reparse data in a way to look at it differently such that you can maybe see something that you couldn't see when you're looking at it as a whole or whatever, things yeah. like that, right. And then hypothesis generation was one I actually thought was really interesting of if you come up with a situation where you have an open-ended question, you really don't know how to approach it, coming up with different hypotheses or, or ways of explaining what you think you're seeing and then working with those and saying, okay, I've got this in the logs. It might be this kind of attack. It might also be a failed version of this kind of attack, or it might be nothing. So based on those assumptions, where can I go from there? So I think that's part of curiosity. He ties it in a lot to creativity as well, which I would also argue is an important part of being an investigator, is trying to come up with these scenarios you know, in your head, having instead of relying purely on what's on, on paper or in logs, saying, what else can this possibly be? So. There's a lot to this post. It's very long. I wish I could give it more credit, more of a, I wish I could do it more. More detailed yes. overview. Yeah. Thank you. But um, I would recommend people read it. Um, it's, it's interesting. There's some, it's some graphs in there. I don't know if the data is data or just a trend. Yeah, I kind of saw, saw that too. 
I wasn't sure. It was a relationship between uh, curiosity and experience. And some of the, the comparisons he had where he said, you know, someone with a high curiosity and low experience will try everything first. They will go after all the leads and pull all the strings. Someone with more experience might say, I could probably rule out a couple of these and then go down the paths that I think are more fruitful or more likely to be fruitful in my experience. Right, right. But there's also, and I'm not sure what I would call it, I wouldn't call it a burnout factor, mm -hmm. but maybe, um, but the idea that after a while with a certain amount of experience, you tend to discount things more aggressively. Right. You tend to hold back and say, Maybe you'll come right. to those I've dead tried end. all these types of avenues and other investigations before well, and it didn't that... pan out, so I'm not even going to bother this time, blah, yeah. blah, blah. That's I it. hit dead ends too often, so you get frustrated and maybe you're, you just kind of like plateau in a way from, yeah. a, from a curiosity aspect. Getting in kind of a rut, I guess right, is a quick right. way of saying that. So yeah, I, I thought this was a great post. This is something that I find really interesting because we, you know, we when we try to hire new candidates in our organization for security analysts, it's one of those things. It's kind of this intangible um, quality that's very hard to tease out of somebody to figure out when I'm meeting you for the first time. Do you have this kind of curiosity that's going to turn that is going to give me the clay that I can mold into a really good security investigator? Um, and I think there are a lot of other good points he made in here about uh, even just creating a good environment to foster, mm -hmm. you know, curiosity in your newer people, you know, pair them with people who have been in the process before, um, create group environments that you work investigations together and learn from each other and how you each approach things in a different way. I know we do that a lot, especially when we have a big investigation we're working. Uh, and I really think that helps kind of share methodologies and keep everybody engaged and curious and laterally thinking. You can say, like, when we're working stuff, I'll say, Mac, can you go look at this weird aspect and you'll go off and run off, and, but we'll all be in the same room working together uh, and feeding each other information back. So anyway, it's a, it's a really good story. Um, and I, I, like you said, I don't think we did it justice. It's worth reading, especially if you're in this business and you have trouble trying to find good security analysts, it's gonna give you some insights on how to foster the ones you currently have, but also maybe identify good candidates in the future, so. Right. Yeah, and that's, I think that's the tough part, like exactly what you said before, you know, the, the fostering part, you know, once you have somebody in and trying to bring out that curiosity is one thing, I think it becomes a lot harder when you're trying to bring somebody in from the outside and try to determine in the you know couple of hours that you get sitting down in front of somebody to decide does this person have that that curiosity that I'm looking for you know so what do you what can you do to try to bring that out you know right you know tease that out how like, do you figure do you that have out that? in yeah. an hour-long interview exactly it's, exactly. it's very difficult yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yep. sometimes you can tell when people are really into what they do and they're doing it at home in the evenings because they don't get challenged enough during the day at work in their current positions. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of questions you can ask yeah. uh, to kind of help guide that along. But yeah, I, think, I think one of the things that probably would help out there is when you're doing when you're doing a technical interview, trying to use scenarios. You know, so right, using right. a scenario where you have the person sort of walk through stuff and see where this person goes. And I think you may get a little bit of a feeling of where this person would go if you threw some sort of scenario in front of them. Right. You know? 
I also wish there was a good way, and I think he addresses this a little bit, if you were to take technology and skill set out of the equation altogether and have some kind of baseline set of like a personality uh, psychological questionnaire, and I think he mentions a few in the article that I actually want to go follow up on. Because I'd like to find people who, even if they don't have any technical skill set, do they have the right mindset that if we give them the technical kind of uh, knowledge along the way, are they going to turn into somebody who's a good uh, investigator, incident handler, et cetera. So anyway, it's interesting. It's a, uh, like I said, I, I found it to be a really interesting story because one of those things, we've talked about it all the time. How do we find really good people, good candidates when we do have job openings? And I know a lot of people struggle with that as well uh, in this kind of field because uh, it's tricky. It's tricky to find good people. And when you do find it, you're like, yes, we got, you know, we got the next Stan Nurlov. <laughs> so, um, all right. So uh, the Internet weather for this week. Um, not any real major changes. Uh, I want to point out a few quick highlights of things. Uh, that uh, we've talked about before and kind of see what the trends look like. So as we talk about all the time, this is uh, the most pro port, so this is the most uh, scanning activity that we've seen, and just in sheer volume. As usual, for the past probably half a year, Telnet port 23 TCP has been way up at the top. Uh, in the number two position, 53.413 UDP, that's the Netis router, that's actually only crept up into this category very recently, uh, probably in the past three months. I want to say like November. We got a chart on it, so we'll go look at that in a second. But uh, that has really crept up. And this is one of those ones where you can just kind of blindly send these UDP packets. And if you hit a Netis router that's vulnerable to it, they'll take that instruction and install malware on themselves. So um, you can really quickly create kind of a wormable type of uh, behavior pattern there. Uh, so I think that's what's going on here. Uh, 22 TCP is SSH. Uh, we see lots of scanning on that as well. 443 TCP is HTTPS. Obviously, people looking for uh, uh, SSL web servers. SMB 445 TCP, that's one that, you know, there's traditionally been a lot of scanning on for various vulnerabilities. So you've got like the Conficker and other types of infections that are probably still out looking for uh, this. This is also where you can get your Windows file sharing. So by hitting the 445 TCP, you can find out what services are being shared on a Windows machine. So if you're exposing that to the internet, that would be uh, something I would recommend against. You should probably close that up, um, even if you're not vulnerable to any of the like MS 08067 or whichever vulnerability that was from many years ago. Uh, RDP, we've seen a lot of RDP scanning, 3389 TCP. That's one that you would definitely want to pay close attention to. If you are exposing your servers to the internet with RDP, first of all, I'd recommend you don't do it. Secondly, if you're going to, make really sure you've got like a 40 long character password with all kinds of goofy garbage in it. Because if you put an easy password in there, there's too much stuff out there, brute force password guessing against these lately. 1911 TCP is an interesting one. This is that Tritium Niagara building automation software. It's for like managing like lights and temperature controls and all kinds of stuff in industrial type complexes. And uh, we've seen some scanning on this, but it is actually kind of a legitimate, I'm going to say legitimate slash research organization involved in that. And then uh, 21 TCP is FTP. We're also seeing scanning on that, looking for FTP servers. This looks like it's mostly that same research organization. I've got a kind of interesting chart I'm going to show you on that as well. 
So first of all, 23 TCP, this is a 90-day chart. This is the amount of scanning activity. The kind of key takeaway I wanted to mention here is that you know, we do see that kind of sawtooth waveform that we always talk about. It's kind of been trending down over the past 90 days. I would say, you know, we're at a low point here. And that is kind of reflected in that pie shape that we had on the previous chart there. Uh, usually that 23 TCP is a little bit bigger and it's kind of, you know, uh, shrunken a little bit in favor of the big other category. And I think that might be because we're kind of in a little bit of a dip here as opposed to when we had some more aggressive scanning at a higher sustained rate uh, previously. This is the chart for uh, the, the scanning activity on uh, FTP and Tritium Niagara. And the thing I wanted to point out here, the Tritium Niagara stuff kind of started, what does that look like? Late, late uh, November, early December, which is uh, in red. And you'll notice that there are these kind of very regular patterns of blue and red. And you'll notice that the blue and red, pretty much the big you know, chunks of them here where there's you know, a continuous amount of scanning for a period of time, are aligned together at the same time periods. That's because it's the same research organization uh, doing this. This is mostly for legitimate type of research data collection, similar to Shodan or Census, some of these organizations that scan this type of stuff. So it's probably benign in nature right now. But there's a reason they're scanning for that, because this might, if you have these ports open, you might be exposing something you don't want, like anonymous FTP, which means somebody might be able to go in there and dump their own files up there, use it as a malware distribution point or whatnot. The Tritium Niagara, if you've got your building automation system open to the internet, that could be a problem in and of itself. You might want to look at that a little bit more closely too. So you know, if you have outsourced that to a vendor, a third party, you might want to ask them, you know, how is that exposed to the internet? How is that managed? If you're, you're letting a third party manage that for you, I know a lot of companies do that. You might want to ask some questions around that to make sure that they're not exposing it just blindly to the internet such that anybody might be able to touch that, um, which could present some problems. Uh, so this is the most sources probing. And when we look at this chart, it usually means that this is a lot of sources acting in unison together, which really reflects more botnet type of activities going on, uh, where you've got like, they're being instructed to do something all together at the same time. So as expected, Telnet 23TCP is the largest population of scanners, even though they've come down in the amount of scanning they're, they're doing from what we saw in the previous chart. Uh, in terms of the volume of number of scan sources, it's still very high, uh, very, very high when you look at it. It's probably whatever, 33% uh, of the pie chart, it looks like, even when you include all other scanning activities. That's pretty significant. The 53413 Netis router, also very high. Uh, the Microsoft file sharing, 445TCP, is in here as well. A lot of these ICMP ones are backscatter, probably not really important. It's probably just, you know, I tried to, or I should, a scanner tried to scan for a certain port and they get the ICMP reject back or whatnot. Uh, so they're probably not as important uh, in the long run of things. Uh, the only other one I would point out here is the 3389 TCP, which is RDP. And I guess I will point out 53 UDP shows up in the chart here. So I did actually highlight that one in, ye in yellow. This is probably, we've seen a lot of uh, DNS reflection activity. I mean, historically we've seen it. There's been a little bit of a um, resurgence in this protocol being used for uh, amplification attacks. Uh, they were using a lot of SSDP. They still are, but not as much. 
and they've kind of kind of gone back to let's use DNS again. And um, this is probably scanning activity looking for open DNS resolvers uh, so that they can use them in their pool of uh, reflection bots. So if you have DNS open to the internet, and it doesn't need to be, maybe you don't even know it is, you should take a look. A lot of weird home routers or strange appliances that you might have at the edge of your network might be offering DNS uh, service when, to the internet, which they really don't need to be, or you might want to verify whether they do or not. Um, so that's something I would take a look at if, uh, uh, if you haven't before. So here's a picture of the 23 TCP Telnet activity. Uh, this is a one-year view. I took a one-year view because I wanted to see what does it look like as compared to like the beginning of last year. You could see it really, you know, we were down around 30,000 scan SIPs per hour back in uh, the beginning of last year. And now it's really kind of crept up pretty steadily and we're at about 80,000, 70,000 or so. Like we said, it was a little bit higher before, up in the 120,000. It's gone down a little bit. Uh, not sure why that is or if there's any rhyme or reason to that. Like we've talked about before, it's always nice when it goes down because that means there's less garbage noise on the internet. Uh, we'll see if that's a continuing trend. I'm going to suspect that it's not. I suspect it'll go back up again. <laughs> but that's just pessimistic me. And here's a picture of the 53413 Netis router stuff. And I just wanted to kind of show that prior to late November of last year, 2015, there was really no scanning on this. Even though this vulnerability had been known, it's been known about for quite a while, I would say at least a year or two. And probably when it first came out, people were exploiting it quite a bit. And then they kind of went away. And somebody came back here, and they've been really trying to exploit it quite a bit lately. So you can see that they did kind of a real quick run of it back in late November, and then said, hey, that worked pretty good. Let's get it going for a long period of time. So they have been for several months now, and we've been reporting on it, and that's why they're in the number two position on our top scanning uh, uh, ports and protocols. And then the last one I think I have here is the RDP scanning. We've talked about this last week. There's always kind of this baseline noise floor that you can kind of see around the 2,000, I think it's 2,000 scan, yeah, scan SIPs per hour that we see. But about a week or two ago, we started to see that sawtooth waveform, which means somebody, you know, so we had this kind of level noise of, okay, these guys are always scanning. And that could be worms, like there's mortar worms out there. There's some other ones that just are always scanning ad nauseum. This kind of indicates to me that somebody's saying, well, I got a botnet now. I want to tell all my bots to go scan these ranges. And you see that kind of sawtooth waveform, and then it goes back down again. And we can see we're at the top of another curve here, uh, real at the very far right-hand side. So we'll see how that goes. Probably next week we'll see another little sawtooth go down uh, when we take a look at it. Yeah, well, we've, we've seen some recent evidence of uh, a couple of groups that that seem to be actively looking for RDP stuff. I mean, yeah. Using a number of common tools, but more than one actor set. Yeah, there's several actors out there. I know we've done some investigations and found tools like, there, I know there's NCRAC, Hydra is one that could do this, um, and DU Brute, I think, is another one that we've seen on the Windows platform. So uh, something to keep an eye out for. Like we said before, if you're exposing your machines with RDP to the internet, I guarantee you there's people looking for them. So if you can block it and not allow that to happen, that would be the best option. If you can't, because you need to 
try to limit it to only the IP addresses that actually need to talk to it. And then if you still can't do that, put a super hard password on there. And I don't know if they give you an option to have any kind of like two-factor authentication with RDP, but if they did, uh, that would be a way to, to even add some extra protections in there. But um, All right, so that's the show for today. Uh, thank you for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. You can also find the AT&T Threat Track on the AT&T Tech Channel, YouTube and iTunes as well. Uh, please follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us today. Uh, thank you, uh, Jim, on the online. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Manny. Uh, I'm John Hogeboom. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.